Our sermon passage for this morning is 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 22. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> Greet Pris and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. And I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So now, Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us from your word. Lord, this prayer is not an empty ritual that we pray before a sermon, but it is a conviction that we need you to speak your word in power so that we will be changed. It's a conviction that we need Jesus. It's a conviction that we need grace. It's a conviction that we need mercy. It's a conviction that our only hope is in Christ. And it's a conviction that we love this world and the things of this world far too much. So Lord, I am pleading with you that in the next 30 or so minutes, you, by the power of your spirit, would work over the people in this room. Lord, where there's doubt, would you give faith? Where there's unbelief, would you save? Where there is rebellion, would you bring repentance? Where there is hurt and brokenness, would you bring healing? Where there is struggle, would you bring help? God, we are pleading with you to work for your people. Particularly, Father, I pray for two types of people today. I pray for those who don't know you, who are separated from you, who stand apart from you and stand in our sin. I pray that you would bring salvation today. And for those who know you but are apathetic, for no, those who know you but are just kind of stuck with, eh, I pray that you would bring an overwhelming sense of how 
good and merciful and loving you are. And I pray that you would ravage us with your joy. So Lord, we know you can do this. We know that you're eager to do this. And we pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Timothy in chapter 4. The good news about you guys being in the second service instead of the first service is that I already know I'm not going to get done. Um, so if you wanted verses 9 through the end, um, you'll have to come back next week. It's not really a bait and switch. It just kind of is what it is. So Stephen, where are you, brother? That means you read all those names and cities for no reason whatsoever. But you did well. Next week, same time, same place? Okay, very good. Thank you. You know, sometimes younger folks like me, I'm still not 40, so I can call myself younger, 39. Uh, one more year. Uh, but younger folks like me, we, we pride ourselves on not sounding like the sweaty hellfire and brimstone preachers of an age gone by. You know the, you know the person? And some of you are visiting, you're like, oh no, oh no, where have I come? Um, but, and this is a really important statement. Sometimes the message of a passage of Scripture is this simple. We're all going to die, and we're all going to face Jesus. And it matters what we believe and in whom we have believed and to whom we belong when we face him. So I know that sets me up for one of those great, sweaty, screamy, hellfire and brimstone sermons. And I'll at least try to hold out the sweat today. But really, the message of the first four verses that Stephen read for us in chapter four of 2 Timothy, six, seven, eight, and nine, is this. Paul's about to die. And because of Jesus, Paul has confidence that when he faces Christ, he will be given a crown of righteousness. Not because he earned it and not because he deserves it, but because Jesus gave it to him. So what this sermon says to us is that confidence in God's power and God's faithfulness shapes everything for us. And so we've entitled this sermon based on an old Christian cliche, it's in the Lord's hands. And I don't mean it in a dismissive, woe is me kind of sense of it's in the Lord's hands, but I believe that the Apostle Paul who wrote this book to Timothy is writing with, with a resolute conviction that his life and his eternity is in the Lord's hands. And but because it's in the Lord's hands, he will be dealt with faithfully and lovingly because God always deals with his children in Christ. And so there is no way to remain biblical and faithful to the faith and take away the fact that our Jesus is not only for this life, 
but for eternity. There is no way to remain faithful to the scripture and take away the fact that our Jesus didn't come and live and die and rise again so that we could have it easier in the here and now, but he came so that we could have life everlasting with him. And if we try to rip that out of our faith, we've ripped the faith away. There's nothing left. The same Paul who wrote this book would say, if all we have is this life, we of all people are most to be pitied. The book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. So the point this morning is that, that in Christ, we are able to face death with hope and joy and confidence. And how we face death radically shapes how we live. That's the point. Now I want to see if I can prove that point to you from the scripture. So, um, Kate, just forget all those points back there. We're starting afresh. This morning when I was preparing this sermon, not preparing, finishing, let me clarify that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I was finishing the sermon, I had a keen sense that I was not going to get out of the first point, and, and I didn't. So I'll just give you points if you like to take notes. First point, facing eternity. Paul is writing this letter, this passage, imminently facing eternity. Look at verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So Paul writes that because his death is imminent. Paul is writing under arrest in Rome for his work for the cause of Jesus. So Paul is not dying as an insurgent criminal who has rebelled against everything in the world. Paul's not dying because he's an evil man. Paul's not dying because he has cancer. Paul is dying because he has stood up for the cause of Jesus. And he knows that his death is imminent. So much so that he says the time of his departure has come. And then he takes up this Old Testament imagery of his life being poured out as a drink offering, meaning his life is being poured out as an offering unto the Lord for the glory of his name and for the building of his church. But Paul writes facing eternity. And I don't know how many of you have sat by the bedside of a dying person. I don't know many, how many of you have stood beside someone who was facing eternity. I don't know how many of you have faced eternity and thought that you had come to your end. But the reality that we can't cut through is one, that we all too will die. And second, that that moment of facing eternity has a profound ability to cut through all the fluff 
and cut through all the secondary stuff and cut through all the stuff that, that has distracted us for all these years to just say, here's what matters most. If I could ask anything of you today, it would be that you would listen to this sermon and you would leave here living as if you were going to die at midnight tonight. Living as if you were going to face eternity this evening. Because what Paul is writing is shaped by a theology that says what we think of eternity impacts everything in the here and now. So my question for all of us today is, all those things we're worried about, all those things we're concerned about, all those things that are causing us to stumble and fall, all those things that are preventing us from getting out of our own way, would they matter if we were going to face Jesus this evening? Would they matter if we were going to be delivered from this life and have everlasting life before the Super Bowl was over tonight? Would they matter? I don't think that's reductionism. I don't think that's philosophically missing the point. I think that is the point of our faith. Our God has sent his son to purchase eternity for all who believe in his name. A joyful, healthy, in sinless, before the throne in the presence of God, eternity for all who call upon his name. So I want you to feel some of the imminence of death that Paul is feeling. Because a life lived in the face of eternity will be a life filled with meaning and fruitfulness for the Lord. And the more detached our lives are from eternity, the more they will become distracted by the kingdom of self and of pleasure and of money and of convenience and of whatever I need to do so that I can be blessed. Now, in the way I want to be, how I want to be. What's also really important for us to note is that Paul is not facing eternity empty. He's not facing eternity without hope. He's actually facing eternity as one who has been, by God's grace, faithful to the Lord. Look at what he says. Verse 7. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You hear those words? Paul's saying, yeah, I face eternity, but by God's grace, I face eternity as one who's been faithful to the Lord. And this is really important, friends. This is really important. Those who are faithful to the Lord often suffer most for their faithfulness to the Lord. Why is Paul dying? Because he's faithful to the Lord. Why is Paul in a prison? Because he's fought the good fight. Why is Paul in a prison? Because he's kept the faith. 
Why is Paul in a prison? Because he's finished the race. That's why. Brothers and sisters, following after Jesus brings eternal joy and eternal blessing and eternal justification. And those things do give joy now, but we're not living for now. We're living to please the Lord. And I look out over this room and see hundreds of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And God would want you to know that being faithful to Him now might only come with future payment, future joy. It is often those who are most faithful to the Lord who suffer most. Suffering does not equal unfaithfulness. Suffering comes as the fruit of living in a broken world that's not devoted to the Lord. And there are so many purported leaders of God's church who would say, if we just love Jesus more, just sin less, and give more money to our ministry, of course, this life will be better. Not true. Not true. We don't live for this life. We live for a Savior who is the Lord of the present and the eternity. So Paul's facing eternity. Second, Paul is facing eternity confidently. Paul is facing eternity confidently. Keep looking at verse 7 with me. I'm sorry, verse 8. So Paul says, My time of departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Do you see what's going on here? Paul's facing eternity confidently. Confident, why? Because of how good and awesome and moral and servant hearted he was? No, he's facing it confidently because he faces it in Christ. He's facing eternity confidently because he knows that he belongs to Christ, that Christ has forgiven his sin, that Christ has purchased his place in the family of God, that Christ has given him everlasting blessing, and that God the Father always welcomes the children of Jesus. So much so that in Romans chapter 8, we're told that if we are in Christ, we are sons of God and we are co-heirs with Jesus and God always blesses his children who are in Christ. And so Paul knows that there is a crown. And by the way, crown means a victor's reward. Think about finishing a marathon and the winner gets the crown. There is a winner's ransom for Paul because Jesus bought it for him. And Paul will face eternity confidently because Jesus has purchased a joyful, confident eternity for everyone who turns to him. That's the hope. And so inside Christian subculture, there's this strange, faux, humble thing where we have to act like maybe we aren't as confident as we really want to feel. And we have to act like we're worms who God might or might not accept. 
But the Bible says if we're in Christ, we're loved, exclamation point. The Bible says if we're in Christ, we're forgiven, exclamation point. The Bible says if we're in Christ, we're accepted, exclamation point. The Bible says if we're in Christ, we are heirs with Jesus, exclamation point. There's no room for doubt. And so my question for you today is not just if you would die before the Super Bowl is over, how would you live differently? But if you knew you would face Jesus before the Super Bowl was over today, could you do so with confidence? Paul says he did. Bring it on, Caesar. Whatever you got, feed me to the lions. I don't care. Jesus wins. I face eternity with confidence. We don't have to be cavalier and we don't have to be stupid and we don't have to go seeking after suffering. But the question is, can we face eternity with confidence? Paul said that he could. And you know what else is he in this passage? An invitation for you too as well. It'd be really simple to say, yeah, pastor, but you know, Paul was unique in God's redemptive historical unfolding of salvation history. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. I'm trying to appeal to the overly geeky among us, okay? You know, I mean, Paul saw Jesus visibly. Yeah, he did. And I haven't. And Paul heard Jesus audibly. Yeah, he did. And I haven't. And Paul was blinded until he repented and believed. And then the Lord gave him sight to go and serve him. Yeah, that didn't happen to me. And Paul was used of God to plant some of the first churches throughout the world and to write most of the New Testament that we now know as God's word. Yeah, that's unique to Paul. But you know what's not unique to Paul? Those who faithfully yield their lives to Jesus will receive the crown of glory. Do you know why? Look at verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's saying, come on, the crown's for you too. He's saying, come on, Jesus accepts all the broken people. Jesus forgives all the sinful people. All you got to do is come to him. All you got to do is see your need of him. All you got to do is repent and believe. All you got to do is identify with him. But Paul points to a day in the future, the day when Jesus is coming back. That's what he means by the appearing. And he's saying that the appearing of Jesus will either be the greatest day or the worst day ever for every single one of us. And so the question is, is if we're in Christ and we know our eternity's in his hands and we know that we belong to him and we know that nothing can snatch us out of his hand, then that day is a day of joy and I long for that day. I long for that day when I'm free from this body of sin and death. I long for that day when I don't wake up at 5 a.m. struggling with sins that the Lord is telling me I need to repent of, but I don't want to do. I long for that day when I don't have to go and spend my weeks reconciling broken relationships anymore because I'm sinful and I have to repent. I long for that day when I'm delivered from from decay. I long for that day when I don't have to feel weary as I walk through life anymore. Why? Because Jesus on that day will make it all right. But if we're not in Christ, Jesus on that day will point out everything that's wrong and you will be separated from him forever. And you ought not long for that day. So those who are in Christ long for that day with joy, but that day is what matters. So much so that Martin Luther reportedly said, I still can't find the, um, the quote and the reference, but it's so good we'll just pretend that he said it. And if not, you can attribute it to me. 
My book will have one sentence in it. We'll sell it for $1.50. But Luther reportedly said, there are only two days that matter. Today and that day. And every morning we wake up believing that there are only two days that matter. Today and that day. So the question for us is, do we love his appearing? Do we love his appearing? So what does it look like to love the appearing of Jesus? I have four things for you. Number one, if we love the appearing of Jesus, we see our need for a Savior. We see our need for a Savior. It's impossible logically and practically to love the coming of the Savior and not see that we need a Savior. So who needs a Savior? Sinful people need a Savior. Broken, rebellious people need a Savior. And and those of us who grew up in America have been hardwired from birth to believe that we are morally good, morally upstanding, and we just need a little bit of education to get us over the hump so that we can make the world a utopian, better place. That's really the message that we've all absorbed in school and in TV and in commercials and everywhere. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that's a lie. It says the world's broken. And it's broken because of me and you. It's broken because of sinful, fallen, rebellious people. And as long as we believe that the world is good enough and strong enough and okay because we're awesome and we're unique, then we won't need a Savior. And as long as I and you believe deep down in the quiet places of our soul that we don't like to talk about at parties, that we're good and we're strong and we're okay, then we won't believe that we need a savior. And Jesus came to save those who see how much they need him. Those who love his appearing see that we need a savior. Yeah, look, the world needs a savior. Yeah, the church needs a savior. Yeah, your spouse needs a savior. Yeah, your kids need a savior. But the most important, most fundamental question is, do I see that I need a savior? Stop pointing fingers out. Hold up a mirror and allow the Lord to show you how much you need a savior. So to love his appearing is to be honest and open and accepting of the reality that we need Savior. Second, to love his appearing, and I'm going to use some really churchy words here and I promise to explain them. To love his appearing is to repent and believe in Jesus for salvation. So I count four overly church Christianese words that most people are tired of hearing. Repent, believe in Jesus for salvation. See if we can explain those. Salvation means to be purchased, redeemed, and delivered from sin, death, and eternal condemnation 
and brought into God's blessing and saving kingdom forever. That's what salvation means. In Jesus means the only way to have salvation comes through Jesus. That's why he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And then, how, how do we come to Jesus? We repent and believe. So repent literally means to turn around, and believe literally means to receive and accept and completely entrust ourselves to Jesus. So this is the way this works. To repent and believe means that we are walking down a path away from God, toward rebellion, toward pleasure, toward what we want, how we want, when we want it. And repent would mean to stop and turn around. I'm going down a path this way, I will stop and I will turn around. And to believe would be not just to accept cognitive realities, not just to accept facts and bullet pointed lists, but to believe would be I see Jesus on a cross pouring out his blood, pouring out his life to cover my rebellion and I am entrusting everything that I have to him. That's what it means to believe. And so to love his appearing is to repent and believe in Jesus for salvation. Now let me be really clear. To repent and believe in Jesus for salvation is not a one-time event. Now bear with me. If for the first time someone is repenting and believing in Jesus, the Bible calls that conversion, calls that being saved, calls that entering into the kingdom of God. And so the first time a person repents and believes in Jesus, they are saved and they belong to Christ and they have nothing eternally to fear. Yet, as we dig through the scriptures, we find Christians called upon to repent. We find Christians called upon to believe. And that doesn't mean that we get converted over and over and over again. I, at Redeemer, we believe that conversion happens once in the life of a person. But the way we grow in our conversion is to continually turn from our sin and continually turn back to the cross and continually say, all I have is Jesus. And the Bible calls that repentance and belief. And so day by day, Christians repent of our sin and believe in Christ for salvation. So I would hope that there are some of us here today who have never repented and believed. And I give to you permission to stop listening to me and start talking to God right now and ask God, God, if you're real, God, if Jesus really is your son, if he really died on the cross for my sin, if there really is an open invitation for me to face eternity in him, would you show that to me and would you redeem me and would you save me? I will turn away from my sin and I'll call upon Jesus. Like stop listening to me and deal with God right now. But for those of us who are in Christ, let us recognize that a Christian life is characterized by repentance and faith. 
Walking with Jesus is characterized by ongoing repentance and faith because moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year, we're either pursuing our sin or we're pursuing Jesus. And the only way to not pursue sin is to literally turn away from it and run after Christ. The Bible's word for that is repent and believe. So loving his appearing is a life characterized by repentance and faith in Jesus. Number three, if we love his appearing, we align our lives with his word. Here's the way we've been saying it the last couple weeks. If we love his appearing, we allow God's word to have the last word in our lives. If we love his appearing, we will want what he wants. If we love his appearing, we will believe what is true and what is revealed. If we love his appearing, we will allow our minds and our hearts and our beings to be shaped by his word. If you want more about that, please go listen to the last two sermons. Read chapter 3 and 4 of 2 Timothy. But if we love his appearing, his word will receive the last word in our lives. Number four. If we love his appearing, we will live for his kingdom above all other kingdoms. If we love his appearing, we will live for his kingdom above all other kingdoms. Now, what's his kingdom? His kingdom is the work that Jesus came to do to change people, to save people, to make people like him, and to build up his church and his work in the world now and forever. That's his kingdom. And so when we repent and believe the gospel, we build his kingdom through, through us identifying more with his kingdom. When we do evangelism, we build his kingdom by new people coming into his kingdom. When we love justice and love mercy and seek to live it out in the world, we are seeking for more people to come under the reign of Jesus through faith in him and through repentance and through experiencing the love as a way to say, come into the kingdom. But we will love his kingdom more than we love any other replacement kingdom. So what are some of those replacement kingdoms? Work, success, power, money, bank accounts, authority, pleasure. Those are all kingdoms that compete for the kingdom of Jesus. And so if we love his appearing, we will love his kingdom more than we love any other kingdom. We'll live for his kingdom more than any other kingdom. So this morning, after my alarm went off and I was hitting snooze every eight minutes, and before my wife's alarm went off, her alarm has a light on it. Like, like husbands, if your wives get the mood light alarm, like just throw it away. Like, like, like pay them off. Like just pay them off. Because here's the thing, if your wife gets it, it's going to be on her side of the bed. So guess where all the light's going to point? At you. Anyway, okay. So while I'm snoozing my alarm and while her alarm has not yet gone off, which means I can just lay in the bed like a sloth and just hit snooze, snooze, snooze. I, I began praying about this sermon. And, and the Lord very clearly convicted me of three things in my life that I was loving more than his kingdom. I'm not gonna share those with all y'all. That, that, that's private stuff between me and the Lord. But it was very clear. 
Like this thing in my family's life, this pursuit in one of my kids' lives, and this friendship, all good and biblical friendship. Let me be clear about that. But this friendship with, with a friend, these things were so reorienting my life that, that those things were becoming more important to me than Christ and his work in the world. And so what did that look like then? Are those three things true? Yeah. They show me that I need a savior. And I believe Jesus is the savior who died for those three shortcomings in my life. And so I can repent of them and I can turn back to the cross and I can plead that the blood of Jesus, which once saved me, would continually cover me and that that I'm accepted in Jesus' world and in Jesus' kingdom. And I then say, the word of the Lord speaks truth over what I feel and I will choose to set aside these three things so that my life can be more committed to building the kingdom of Jesus. That's what it looks like to love his appearing. And the promise is that loving his appearing is worth it. The promise is that loving his appearing has eternal fruit. So Father, I pray now, that you would take these truths that have been shared this morning and you would speak your word over your people and power. Whatever is right and just and good that has been shared this morning, I pray that you would cause it to rest on your people this morning. Cause it to be believed. Amen.